This week on Thinking Biblically, I will explain how misguided thinking about the New Testament's view of the Jewish people undermines the very character of God. Welcome to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to exploring how all of Scripture speaks to all of life. Before we get into this week's topic, I would like to remind everyone, if you haven't done so already, to please subscribe. Uh, You could review and share. All that helps. Um, I want to um, remind everyone again, as I mentioned last time, that next week, Wednesday, November the 2nd, at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we're having a special live edition of Thinking Biblically where we're going to be celebrating 25 years of a blog, you can call it that, that I have been producing uh, called Torah Bites. My son Daniel will, will be the special guest host. Um, it's going to be in a Zoom webinar format, so you're going to have to register for that. It's free. Uh, the The registration link is below. And so you could please do that Do that if you haven't done so already. Uh, hopefully there's going to be some surprises uh, uh, that evening. And uh, also, it would be great if in advance you could send in your comments and questions. You can do that with a special email address. That's 25 at torahbytes.org. All this will be in, in the description below. Uh, the registration link is uh, torahbytes.org slash 25. And so you could send your comments and any Torah questions, uh, questions about the books of Moses you might have, and uh, we'll, we'll try to get to that next week. If you're watching this after November 2nd, hopefully you're going to see a link to the recorded version, so you could, you could watch it after the fact if all goes well. Anyway, last week, um, this is a bit of a follow-up from last week, it's sort of it is and it isn't, and I'll explain. I, I think it'll be clear in a moment. So last week we looked at John chapter 15, verse 2, because I was concerned that the conventional way that that's translated is actually not helpful, at how it undermines uh, the faithfulness of God. And if you haven't seen that, I'm going to put the, the link to that also in the description. You can check that out. But you don't have to watch or listen to that first before this one, even though the, the, the wrong, what I think is a wrong approach to verse 2 of John chapter 15 is a, an issue uh, to ver- that has to do with verse 1 as well. And so there's a theme going on here. Uh, that there is a misguided understanding to John chapter 15, verse 1, uh, that undermines what God wants us to understand with regard to his faithfulness to us. Um, So let's go there. Let's go to John chapter 15, verse 1. I'm going to read that, and then uh, we're going to get into it. So in John chapter 15 and verse 1, Yeshua says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Um, the word actually is farmer, and it's referring here. We don't normally think uh, in our culture as uh, a person who takes care of a vineyard as a farmer, but you, you get it. It's, you, he's the God the Father is the caretaker of this vineyard, and Yeshua calls himself the true vine. Uh, well, what happened was when I was doing some study with regard to verse 2, 
where I believe most translations are misguided, English translations and how they speak about every, I should read it again here, uh, here in English Standard Version, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I explain in the podcast uh, from last week that the Greek word translated here and in many English translations as take away uh, can e- equally be translated as lift up, um, which actually makes far more sense in the in the context that God takes care of of us when we're struggling, when we're being or feeling fruitless. Um, our our Father doesn't just reject us, but works in our life that we would be fruitful, just like he prunes us when we do bear fruit that we might bear more fruit. Well, you can listen to that in more detail uh, in last week's podcast. So when I was doing some of my research and study into verse 2, I discovered that there is an approach to verse 1, uh, in, not, in, not in the translation. The translation, in my opinion, is totally fine. It's very straightforward. But how it's understood is actually very problematic. It's problematic uh, for, for my people, the Jewish people, and then it's also pragmatic to all believers because, as I've said, I believe mis- a misunderstanding here in John 15.1 undermines God's faithfulness to both the Jewish people in general, and to all followers of Yeshua, the Messiah. And so what what ends up happening here is when you look at many commentators and they provide their comments for the first part of chapter 15, verse 1, where Yeshua says, I am the true vine, they take this as a contrast to Israel. Now, Israel in uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is often um, used as a, a, how do I say that, the the metaphor of a vine or a vineyard is often used for the people of Israel. And it looks like Yeshua is speaking off of that. I think that that's true. It's possible, um, some commentators mentioned that uh, at this point, this is the evening before he's arrested, um, he, he's walking with the disciples, and they're possibly walking by the temple. In front of the temple, there's this like major decoration of, of a vine, and that's all connected to Israel being thought of as a vine or a vineyard of God. And, and so there are very there are many references to this in the Hebrew Scriptures, and that Yeshua is speaking off of that and, and continuing that metaphor and applying it to himself, and that's all fine. But by saying that he is the true vine, many commentators, what they say about that is that's in contrast to Israel that either was the vine of God or was the was was a faulty vine. And so Yeshua is is contrasting in this way and in a sense replaces or or it's a statement of rejection of Israel as God's vine. I have a couple of examples from some commentators. Uh, the first one is Robert Mounts. He wrote this his commentary in 2007. He says, in contrast to Israel, the vine of God that failed to produce the expected fruit, Jesus comes to them as the true vine. So, 
Israel was the original vine of God and was a failure. And now Yeshua comes and, and he's the real deal. He's the real deal. Israel was not the real deal. Israel maybe should have been the real deal, but failed. Um, and Yeshua comes, he's the real deal. And he's going to accomplish what, what the vine's supposed to do. And there's little bits of truth in this, but it's colored in such a way as to look at Israel in a very, very negative light. Gary Burge writes in his commentary, 2009, he, he writes, but here in John 15, he makes a departure. Yeshua is making a departure. In his final I am saying, there's all these I am sayings in the Gospel of John, I'm the light, and so on. So in his final I am saying in this Gospel, Yeshua declares that he is the true vine. That is, in this ancient imagery, he has taken the place of Israel as God's true planting. So he's implying here that Israel the vine was God's was God's true planting, and now that's surplanted by Yeshua the Messiah being the true plant, planting, implying that Israel is rejected as God's vine. Now, on what basis do these and other commentators make it sound that Yeshua is the replacement vine? Israel was God's vine, failed, and now Yeshua comes as the replacement vine and thus rejects Israel as God's God's planting. On what basis is that? Well, there are several passages they refer to Israel as either as the vine or the vineyard of God. I'm going to give you the list, and then we're going to look at a few of them. We're not going to look at all of them. Um, there's Psalm 80, which we're going to look at near the end of, of this uh, talk. Then there's Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, as well as Isaiah 27, verses 1 to 6. You can look these up later. Some of them we're going to look at now. Jeremiah 2, verses 21 and 22, as well as chapter 12, verses 10 to 17. Then there's Ezekiel 15, 1 to 8, as well as 17, 1 to 21. And also Ezekiel 19, 10 to 14. And finally, Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. As I said, we don't have time to look at them all, but we're going to look at, at, at some of them. So let's look, first of all, at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 to 7. I'm going to read it, and then I'll make a couple of comments. Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes but he yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you that I will what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, you could see why these commentators uh, would say what they did. 
focusing on on a passage like this, like Isaiah 5 verses 1 to 7. Um, There's this idea where God is thinking of, of Israel as his vineyard, and Israel let him down, didn't produce that which God wanted uh, wanted them to produce, and the result would be some sort of judgment. God did not get what he wanted, and therefore um, there's going to be big trouble. But that's not the whole story. Look at Isaiah 27, verses 2 to 6. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. Now, it's not sure here if he's talking about enemies attacking the um, his vineyard. Um, or if he is angry at his vineyard. But look at verse 6. In days to come, Judah shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. So like the first passage, Isaiah 5, there's trouble with the vineyard. But eventually, the vineyard will produce that which God was, was hoping for, and there will be a positive end. So whatever trouble Israel was in, and in its unwillingness or inability to produce the kind of good fruit, metaphorically, that God was looking for, the day will come when Israel, the Jewish people, will produce the fruit that God desired. Okay, Jeremiah 2, verses 21 and 22. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. Pretty negative. But look at Jeremiah 12, verses 10 to 17. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They've made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come, for the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I've given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land. I'll pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I've plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. And I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. It shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name. As the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. If any nation will not listen, then I'll utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord." And so while Israel does not produce what God originally intended, God's going to deal with that. Now, if we had time, we could look at other passages that don't use the vine or vineyard metaphor. 
uh, in Ezekiel, uh, where uh, God speaks about taking out the heart of stone and giving Israel a heart of flesh, a heart that will desire to serve him. Or in Jeremiah chapter 31, where it speaks about having broken the covenant given to the people at Mount Sinai, God would give the people a new covenant and take Torah, his law, which Torah actually is better translated direction. God takes his direction, his teaching, and puts it internally into the heart of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so that, uh, the people would know him forever. And that is far more uh, the, the, the way when God speaks about punishing and disciplining the people of Israel, eventually, either in the immediate context or, or, or somewhere else, he speaks about restoration. Um, and so this idea that Israel the vine or Israel the vineyard failed and therefore Messiah comes as the true vine, thus supplanting, replacing the original vine of God, doesn't really hold up to the overall scope of Scripture. Now, Israel's failure in Scripture to fulfill God's desires, which is with there are many um references to this. Even in the books of Moses, we see Moses telling the people that failure to truly follow God in the way we were called to is anticipated. And it doesn't take much to see of the struggles and the the wrongdoing of the people of Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures. But what is that actually for? What's the purpose of Israel's failure? Well, Paul makes this comment in Romans 3, verses 19 and 20. Um, He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. He's speaking about the covenant that God made with the people of Israel, Mount Sinai, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so what's going on here is God wanted to make himself known to all the nations of the world. We see that clearly stated in Genesis chapter 12 with the mandate that that God gave to Abraham um, that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. God called Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham, uh, to be the channel through which, through the people that would come through him, that blessing, that life would come to all the nations of the world. In other words, to break the curse that occurred when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden. And so God works this promise out by creating a nation through Abraham and by revealing to them his ways. Now God knew that any nation that he called would not be able to live up to their to his standards. Now Instead of showing that to the world altogether at, at all the nations in the same way, he chose a particular nation to demonstrate the need of all humanity. So by Israel not being able to live up to God's standards, God was demonstrating to the entire world that human beings need him, need his forgiveness, need the person who would become known as the Messiah. And so we see that when God begins to confront Israel about 
about our failure. Some of the examples that I read uh, about Israel the vine, Israel the vineyard, that when God confronts Israel about our wrongs, our inability to, to live according to God's standards, he also promises restoration. And it's through the restoration of Israel through the Messiah that restoration of all people in their need for God it occurs. And so Israel's failure not only reflects the sinfulness of all human beings, it also demonstrates God's faithfulness. Because Israel, just like any other nation, in its inability to be all that God wants humans to be, is also the object of God's continual love, God's faithfulness to Israel. The Hebrew concept is chesed, God's covenant or God's loyal love that he continues and continues to express towards the people of Israel. So that when the people of Israel get into big trouble and, and the prophets are, are warning that God's judgment is coming through uh, foreign armies invading the land, of, of exiling the people to foreign lands, they also speak about restoration, re restoration to the land and restoration of heart. And uh, one of the, what, what the New Testament calls a, a mystery of God is that through this work of restoration, the restoration of, of sinful Israel, God, because of God's faithfulness to them, was going to reveal his love to all the nations, nations of the world so that all people, not just the people of Israel, will be restored through the Messiah, but all people. And so the message of the New Testament is actually an inclusive one that is not just for the people of Israel, but is for all people on earth. Sadly, through church history, the, the church eventually, instead of understanding that the gospel was an inclusive message, not just for Jewish people, but also for non-Jews, began to define itself as something replacing the people of Israel. And then that informs how commentators look, and many just common Bible readers will look at John 15 verse 1, when Yeshua says, I am the true vine. He's not saying true, true vine as a complete contrast to the people of Israel, as if he was saying Israel was supposed to be the true vine, failed, and so God had to replace the bad vine with the good and true vine. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here has more to do with the idea of Yeshua functioning as what, I, what I'm calling representative Israel. Not replacement of Israel, but representative of Israel. And that is a function that we see others playing earlier in the scriptures. There was a time when the people of Israel, while Moses was receiving the Torah from God on Mount Sinai, and he was taking too long, at least that's what the people thought, that they got Aaron to create an idol, and they had this big um, uh, immoral uh, celebration, so to speak. And God was prepared to wipe out the nation and make a new nation through Moses. And Moses went back up uh, 
up the mountain and pleaded with God on behalf of the people to forgive them because God wanted to wipe them out. And at that moment, Moses is is there praying as representative Israel, pleading on behalf of the people. The people had basically all gone away from God, and there was just Moses left. And Moses stood on behalf of the people, and God forgave the people because of Moses pleading with him. Representative Israel. It was at that point, only Moses was left, in a sense, as the as true Israel. Now, his his acting at representing the nation didn't disqualify the people. Now, their sin may have disqualified them, but his stand in their place helped to restore or preserve, rather is probably a better word, preserve the people in their covenantal relationship to God. And so Moses stands as representative Israel. This happens again a little different. Uh, The people weren't in this place of of facing um, a judgment under God, Uh, but in the story of David and Goliath, Goliath is challenging the people of Israel, and the whole army of, of Israel being led by King Saul is too afraid to fight the Philistine. And so they're not acting in the way that Israel should act as God's faithful people. And David comes and he stands on their behalf and is is behaving in the way Israel is supposed to behave, trusting in God, trusting that God will use him to defeat the enemy. And when David succeeds, then that restores the confidence to the people, and then they begin to behave as Israel is supposed to behave. And so Yeshua actually functions in the same way. So Israel again is at a place where judgment is coming. You know, a lot of people, um, when we study the New Testament, we don't fully understand the state of the nation at that time, the corruption of the priesthood. Uh, the priesthood was, it was not the priesthood that was descended from Aaron anymore. It was, they were in, uh, in cahoots with the Romans and it was a, it was a pretty big mess. And, and the people were confused. They were being oppressed by religious leadership and, uh, Judgment, the judgment of God was coming again on the people of Israel. And that's when Messiah comes. And Messiah's function wasn't a function whereby Israel becomes rejected by God. And even though later on that's how the church would, would teach it. He comes as representative Israel to stand in Israel's place to fulfill God's will for the nation. And the result of that is seen in thousands of Jewish people turning to God in the name of the Messiah, uh, Jewish people going out into the known world at that time, bringing the truth of God in, in, to the nations, um, writing the New Testament. So Jewish people, with maybe the exception of Luke, who wrote two of the books in, in, in uh, the New Covenant writings, as I like to call it, the New Testament, um, but Jewish people through the Messiah following in God's way. But also, like Moses, it's through what Yeshua did that preserves the relationship of God to the people as a nation. Um, I've, I've taken time, maybe I'll put the, um, the article that I wrote in how Yeshua dying for uh, the people, 
primarily, actually for the Jewish people, preserves our relationship to the land that's never really thought of. Um, but that's connected with with God's promise to uh, to Abraham when he goes to sacrifice Isaac uh, in Genesis chapter twenty two. As I said, I'll, I'll put the link to that. I won't get I won't get into that now. But when Yeshua died on the Roman cross, uh, the governor Pilate had put over his head written in in Hebrew or Aramaic, Latin and Greek, the King of the Jews. Now he did it to mock the Jewish people. But he didn't know the kind of irony that, that the, that God was working out here, that Yeshua was functioning in that incredible sacrifice that he gave himself, that he was standing as, standing, he was, he was being displayed rather as representative Israel and fulfilling as true Israel, God's heart for Israel that would one day result in Israel's restoration. Paul speaks about this in Romans 11, that one day all Israel will be saved. And it's through what Yeshua has done that preserves God's relationship as a nation, as a nation to to God. Um, Where people get messed up with this is uh, they fail to see how God's faithfulness to the people of Israel as a nation. What does that mean for the individuals? We see this all the way through Scripture, that while God has a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, that he will never break, uh, that that doesn't necessarily mean that individuals reap the benefits of that covenant. Reaping the benefits of God's covenant happens always through faith. And so whether it's the the Jewish believers of the first century and onward, or the faithful ones of God that that Paul refers to also in Romans 11, when he speaks about faithful Israel, he speaks about the remnant, that there's always been this remnant, even though when you read the story of Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures, um, there's a lot of waywardness, there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of rebellion, but there was always the faithful remnant. And that remnant is a possibility even though the majority was unfaithful to God, the remnants of possibility because of God's ongoing faithfulness to Israel. And that comes to a, to a head in the, the crucifixion and resurrection of the Jewish Messiah, which not only uh, holds up the faithfulness of God to the people of Israel, but provides a way to God to all the nations of the world. And so when Yeshua dies on the cross and resurrects, he is resurrected later on, we could say he wins the day for Israel and for the world and provides an opportunity for individuals, whoever they are, Jew or Gentile, to come to know the true God and to know him forever. And so what is is necessary to understand here is, is by Yeshua being the true vine, he provides and, and, and continues to establish God's heart for the, the Jewish people. He doesn't replace God's plan for the people of Israel, but he actually provides that which 
continues God's faithfulness to the people of Israel. I hope I am explaining this well. Please do send your questions and comments. You can always write me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org and I'd be very happy to, to dialogue on these things. This is not the only place where this is properly to be properly understood in this way. Anyway, I saved reading Psalm 80 because I wanted to first restore what I believe is a better understanding of when Yeshua says he's the true vine, uh, making him in a sense the true Israel, how that actually connects with the people of Israel as opposed to replacing them. And so with that in mind, I'd now like to provide with a dramatic reading that I'm trying to do of Psalm 80, and so I'd like to play that for you now. Psalm 80 to the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then. We shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So I hope you're able to catch the heart that is expressed in Psalm 80, that once we understand God's faithfulness to his vine, and then we discover the role of what Psalm 80 speaks of, the Son of Man, the role of the Son of Man and what he's going to do in preserving the vine of God, not to mention then allowing others to also be connected. It's here that um, God's heart for the people of Israel is so 
well expressed. Now, I have one more bonus thing that I want to share with you before we go. Uh, but before that, I do also want to express what I think is God's heart for our own people, the Jewish people. It's sadly often the way uh, the teaching about Yeshua, Jesus, is presented is so foreign to the Jewish to the Jewish people when actually it the Jewish people should be at most at home in Yeshua the Messiah. And if there are any of my people who are watching this or listening to this who don't yet know Yeshua as the Messiah, this is an opportunity to be connected to the vine. And that takes us into the rest of the chapter where we're encouraged uh, uh, to be connected to the vine because it's only there that we can bear the fruit that God wants us to bear. And so we need all of us, Jew and Gentile, to be connected to God through Yeshua the Messiah. And here too, if you have any questions about this, please don't hesitate to contact me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. So one more bonus thing. So when I was preparing this, I was reminded of a song that I heard a long time ago. Uh, somehow I don't remember how we had this album back in the late 70s. Uh, there was a group called The Star of David Singers, and they had been in Montreal. And um, there's one song on that album that is from Psalm 80. And uh, I went looking on the web, and I, I couldn't find a, a, a copy of the recording. And through uh, their simple website, I contacted one of their members from a long time ago, and I got permission to create a lyric video of this musical rendition of Psalm 80. And so let's play that now. Oh, 
Well, I hope that touched your heart in some way as it has mine through all these years. And uh, so again, let me remind you uh, to leave any comments that you'd like in the comments section. Uh, and also you can email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Also, don't forget uh, to register for the Torah Bites 25th anniversary live edition of Thinking Biblically next week, November the uh, second at 8 p.m. Eastern. And so until then, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. 